the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Ed Martin here on a Pro-America Report. Hey, in a few moments, we're going to talk with Catherine Engelbrecht. If there's somebody who should be upset that we didn't get this election fraud under control ahead of time, it's Catherine Engelbrecht. True the Vote has been talking about election fraud for a long time. So I'll be, I'm going to be excited to talk to her because she's very smart. She's tough. She is wise now after all the battles. But I'm a little mixed to talk to her because I think she's right a lot and she's probably pretty disappointed. So we'll talk with her in a few minutes. We have a new guest this time on the program today. We'll, we'll talk with a gentleman named Lance Morrow. And Lance Morrow is a very interesting cat, very interesting character. He has... Um written he's written a bunch of things he's been uh all over the place he's somebody who i think is going to be interesting uh to talk to and he is a guy who his perspective is um less i think it's less um less common is that the best way to do it he is uh it's it's less it doesn't penetrate as much in this sense he's a money guy he knows about money and he knows about all the different things but he also is talking about how Money has become like a god for people, and he's written a book called God and Mammon, Chronicles of American Money by Encounter Books, and we'll talk about that. That was a good thing at this time of season when everybody's getting gifts, worried about what they're going to get, 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 what they're going to give, give, give. Let's uh, talk to him about that. It'll be fun to talk to him, and we will talk to him in a few moments. So first, what you need to know today. Today is Wink. What you need to know. Well, there's lots and lots of coverage of uh, the um, question of did Mitch McConnell call President, uh, Vice President Biden, President-elect? Is Donald Trump mad about that? Et cetera, et cetera. Here's what you need to know. Here's the number one thing you need to know. I, I want you to listen to this. And I haven't heard anybody say this. I was a Tea Party guy. When the Tea Party exploded on the scene in 2009, as we gathered for that, there was such energy and such dissatisfaction with the direction of the country that it was like off to the races. But ultimately, very quickly, not ultimately, but very quickly, and then ultimately... The Tea Party became sort of um, varied, and uh, some people, I often say this phrase, some of the Tea Party folks were co-opted, some were corrupted, and some just moved on. But there wasn't a unifying vision of one aspect of the Tea Party. You know, it wasn't we're against taxes. Some people were against taxes. Some people were against spending. Some people were against health care takeover. Some people were against disrespecting and not taking care of our veterans. Some people were against the wars, which were dragging on too long. Lots of things were part of the Tea Party movement. And there was no one leader. You know, there was people that were iconic in that time. Andrew Breitbart rose to sort of, well, not to sort of, but to fame. There were some candidates. Rand Paul, Tea Party candidate, certainly was an insurgent candidate. But there was no one leader. You know, Santilli, the man who started it with his famous rant on, uh, on, um, uh, on TV in Chicago, 
But no one kind of captured the leadership. And what I see now at the end of the Trump at the end of the Trump four years, I still think there's going to be some turnaround. I have to be honest with you, but we'll see. You know, it's getting the odds are getting longer and longer. But when when but at this point, what I see the Republican establishment, the leadership, and the media doing is not surprisingly operating as if the insurgent uh, movement. That is the Trump voters and the Trump party is like the Tea Party because that's what they dealt with the most recent. The most recent threat to the status quo of the center right coalitions was the Tea Party. And so you, when you co-opted and corrupted and outlasted the Tea Party, you, those, those, those tools still exist. They have to do with money. They have to do with time passing. They have to do with getting some leaders to sort of be transitional figures. And eventually you sort of, you know, it kind of faded away, the Tea Party. You don't, you don't hear about it. Some, some iconic folks, um, um, uh, Jenny Beth Martin of the Tea Party Patriots has sort of had staying power, but of a certain sort of bandwidth, right? And Rand Paul certainly is a national figure. But he's not only a Tea Party figure. The difference here is that and what you need to know is that what's happening with the movement of people that are gathered on sort of the the the, uh, America first Trump movement is there are two factors that were missing in the Tea Party that exists now. One is a unified vision. More unified, at least. When you say America first, and you say that means I want American workers first, and American families first, and American jobs first, and American industry first, and American priorities first, and et cetera, et cetera, you kind of get it there, right? You don't have to explain it. You don't have to justify it. You don't, you don't get many people that say, I'm for America first, but not this. Right. On immigration, on trade, on the standoff with uh, communist China. It's pretty clear what America first means, a unifying vision. And lots and lots of voters and more importantly, citizens have come to associate themselves with that movement. They feel like it's a movement that's for everybody that's American. It's not for everybody, by the way. It's not for foreigners. It's not for non-citizens. But if you're an American, black, white, orange, blue, whatever, you feel man, woman, you feel like it's for you. That's the reality of the sort of America first movement. And people feel that. The second unifying part of what's happening in this country is there is a leader. And to ask anybody who's a candidate or who's a fundraiser or anybody else on the center right who the leader is, and they don't have to pause a moment. It's Donald J. Trump. If you're not in the Trump vein, in the Trump sort of direction, you don't even get listened to. You don't even get heard. And so now when the establishment says, well, you know, we're not going to get to the bottom of the fraud in the election. We're not going to get to the problems. We're not going to get to it. Just got to move on now. You know, just get move on. They're running the risk that the playbook they're running is from the Tea Party era, not from this era. And my examples, which I've said over and over again, are in 2018, Donald Trump campaigned hard for a bunch of candidates. And a few won, by the way. Uh, Josh Hawley beat uh, Claire McCaskill. That was a good one. But many of them lost. You know, the House, they lost seats, like lots of seats, because the Trump vision was harder to sell without Trump on the ballot. He motivated people to get on the ballot. And by the way, he motivated the new voters in the Trump vision, the the, 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 the working class, you know, a non college degree uh, uh, Americans and, and, and a bunch of Democrats that were leaving the party 
of the Democrat Party because they saw somebody on their side. And so my point here is this. I, I, I tell people over and over again, do not ever think third party makes sense or independent makes sense. None of that's true. No, that makes sense. That's not worth a thing. But... And, do, and certainly don't say to people, uh, don't vote. Like in the Georgia uh, runoff, it's crazy not to vote. I mean, it's just crazy. There's too much at stake. What, I'm do, uh, what I will describe and what you need to know, and you feel it around you, you probably feel it inside you, and you are wondering, is this? And the Republican establishment and the people in charge, they need to know. They need to hear it. There's a lot of Americans that when they look up and see Donald Trump fighting only by himself, Fighting all these years for the American people and and for the Republicans, you know, endorsing Romney and then Romney's never for him. You know, I mean, and and, and, but more importantly, broadly looking up and then they're told, hey, 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 now you got to run through fire in Georgia. Now you got to give money to help support Georgia. Now you got to be they think to themselves, you know what? The system felt rigged before Trump. It feels rigged again. It feels rigged again. We just went through a fake campaign with a fake candidate who they're trying to tell us is the fake president-elect. And we're watching the fake news and the fake polls. The fake, fake, fake. We feel it. And you think we can't feel it? You think we can't see the truth? Man, you can't handle the truth we got. You can't handle what we're feeling. So I just my warning is and what you need to know is what you're feeling yourself, what you're seeing and hearing around you from others. It's don't be afraid of it. Don't be embarrassed. Don't be concerned. It's real. And the problem is whether the leaders who have positions of leadership and authority and other and other places are going to stand up and say, hey, wait a second. We know what you're going through. And here's what we're doing about it. Not we, we know what you're going through. Just move along or come along. That's not going to work. I don't think this time. And it's something people should be really focused on and, and concerned about. All right, that's what you need to know. Don't forget, go to ProAmericaReport.com, ProAmericaReport.com, and sign up for the Daily Wink. Uh, lots in those daily emails uh, for you to follow, and I uh, hope you'll do that. All right, when we come back, we will talk with Catherine Engelbrecht of TrueTheVote.com, as well as Mr. Lance Morrow, who's written a book on God and Mammon, uh, American Stories of Money. We'll talk with him in a few moments. We'll be right back. It's Ed Martin here on a Pro America Report. Back in a minute. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on a Pro-America Report. Our next guest is our old friend Catherine Engelbrecht, and she is, of course, with True the Vote, truethevote.org. You need to check it out. Tons of resources now. Catherine, I've been thinking about you in my open today. I was talking about how before, in fact, I went back and listened. We had you on on October 20th, and I was talking about how we're on the brink of an election. We're about to talk to Catherine Engelbrecht, how she always puts me on the spot because she says, hey, Ed, what are you doing? What's going on? What are, you know? What's happening? What are you going to actually do to make sure the election has high integrity and fight for it. And now after this election, with as much as we've seen, it's not I know you don't feel good when I say this, but you kind of did tell America so. Right. You told you you can say I told you so. It doesn't make anybody feel better. But I mean, are even are you even surprised at the scope of of how much uh, crazy fraud and things went on in this election? Or is it what you sort of saw coming? Um. I don't know that I, I would have anticipated the all of the events, but n- none of it has really surprised me. Uh, this has been, uh, you know, this has been going on for quite some time, um, and and now I sort of liken it to a to a great awakening. Uh, I think the challenge is going to be 
translating this passion into action now and continuing for the weeks ahead and 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 the fights you know that are you know present and front and center uh but then beyond i mean we we can never again let what happened in november um happen and now that america is awake we need to get involved and take back our elections so uh, Catherine Engelbrecht again is who our guest is and uh, go to truthevote.org. Um what um what is the what is the underlying problem when when you hear people say um that there's lots wrong, you know, the is the underlying problem that local jurisdictions don't know what they're doing or or they're or they're not uh, corrupt? Is it the system? I mean, some people want to solve a, a problem like this by saying, oh, you know, nationalize everything. I think you and I probably get mm, nervous about no, that, but right, I mean, right. what what is that? What's really the underlying you know issue and 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 sort of how do you start to to fight back? Sure, sure. Well, the the, the greatest issue that we face is that the fraud has been institutionalized. And it hasn't happened overnight. It's happened in little fits and starts over years and decades. And, and, and now we find ourselves in a place where you will have to peel back layers of, of legislation and changes that have happened through litigation and consent decrees and roles that are incredibly poorly maintained and, and processes that are antiquated and people who are unfamiliar with with all of this, and everybody's getting a crash course now, but it's it's going to take time to to see all of this work through to um, a place where where citizens realize, yeah, I, I've got you know this is just part of my civic duty. I've got to vote and serve. Um, so so it's a it, this is a very layered um, problem. Um, I think that in the immediate uh, term of you know as we now look at, at uh, where we are still fighting on on the. Uh, fronts of the general election and the upcoming runoff election in Georgia, um, you know, those are you know clear, um, clear issues that we we can't take our eyes off the ball about. But at the same time, recognize that our our state legislatures are going to be full speed ahead trying to legislate a fix. And I would caution that that is a huge mistake. We need to slow our roll and listen to people locally absorb what happened and be thoughtful in our approach so that we don't just put a Band-Aid on a very broken problem. All right. So now I know you're down in Georgia and I know like uh, you're you're like a um, I mean, you're you're heroic in your willingness to keep going and keep fighting. And, and there's a million things that you're seeing and all. But in, in you know, in five weeks or four weeks, whatever, you're going to have an we're going to have an election in um, in Georgia. And to guys like me and so many of our listeners, they say they just did so many things fraudulently and so many things wrong. And now we're supposed to say, oh, this time they'll do it well. It, it doesn't feel possible, right? So how is how is uh, January fifth in uh, in in Georgia going to be any better than than what's happened in on November third in America? Well, um, we're we're trying to take uh, some proactive steps to to stop the subversion before it starts in in this uh, in this upcoming election. And one of the ways that we're doing that is uh, by having done a very deep dive into the existing voter rolls and. Georgia law provides for um, provisions for citizen challenges that we are that we are um, going to be uh, working with Georgia voters and and are I shouldn't say going to be we are working with Georgia voters across the state uh, where we will be um, 
supporting them in challenges in every single county in the state. That will start tomorrow and uh, probably be done by Friday. The reason that we're doing it so early is that the state will begin opening those absentee ballots two weeks prior to the election. And as we've all become, you know, all too familiar, once you open that that envelope and separate the envelope with the signature from the ballot, uh, you know, you can't put the genie back in the bottle. And once those documents mm-hmm. are separated and those votes become part of the, the broad population of votes, then no matter no matter how you'd like to, to draw that back once you disqualify um, ineligible votes, it's just not possible. So, so that's what we're doing now and focusing on that. Additionally, we are going to be supporting curing efforts to make sure that people who have ballots that have been disqualified for any reason are notified of that and are given opportunity to uh, make whatever uh, corrections necessary. Uh, we are hosting an election integrity hotline uh, and have met with leaders from across the state to let them know that we're here. We want to be a value add to the community. But I'll tell you what, Georgia voters are not are not taking this lightly. They are fully engaged, and it's been a real pleasure uh, to see such an active and engaged electorate uh, getting ready for this upcoming election because they, they just don't want to see a repeat. Do you think uh, – well, and that's that's where I was going to go uh, next. You're confident right now, five weeks out, that you've got the pieces. I mean, I heard some I heard some of the questions that we were not – you know, Americans weren't able – or Georgians weren't able to get some of the new voter registration, and there was these questions going on. I mean, are you, are you feeling uh, good about where you think things are? Um, yes. Now, look, I, I, you know, the, the, the truth of the matter is there is no – perfect, error-free, real-time data set available, and that is maddening. But we can mm-hmm. go with what we have, and, um, and you know, that's, a, that's still a fight to be fought another day. I mean, there are, so many, there are so many layers to this transparency issue that we still need to examine. I mean, everything from being able to have access, real-time access to accurate and up-to-date voter rolls, which, which are far far from accurate in this in the state uh but all the way through to you know transparency about what's going on around these uh ballot drop boxes and you know there's camera feeds there we should be real you know, real time live streaming all of it so um right you know we're, we're gonna we're gonna do all that we can to shine a light of truth on the upcoming um runoffs and of course we're still helping you know groups across the, the country uh as they're uh continuing to look into the general election, as are we. I mean, the data, you know, the data will tell the tale, but it just is not readily available. So it makes it challenging. But, but uh, you know, we've been here for 10 years. We're not going anywhere. And, in fact, we're just redoubling our resolve into 2021 to, uh, to be on the forefront of election reform. We're talking with Catherine Engelbrecht. Again, go to truethevote.org and sign up there for her, her emails and to be a part of that community because they've got a lot going on. Uh, Catherine, uh, one more question sort of broadly. The election of 2020 on November 3rd and President Trump, when you look at this, and I know I'm not saying you can prove it or that you're you, – but you have an opinion because you've watched a lot of stuff. In your mind – do you have any doubt? I mean, can you will will you say? Can you say, or do, are you more? Is it more circumspect that 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 President Trump won this election? That that there was enough fraud, broadly speaking, uh, across the country that that was done to sway the election? Do you think that's right now? Can you say that's true? Um, I will say that in the states where we have looked, and and they are the the battleground states, that the data suggests anomalies that 
would support um, a different outcome at the top of the ticket. And, and to that end, that you know, the, the, the numbers of votes that are in question could have um, uh, given President Trump the, the, the win. Um, the frustrating part about that is, you know, that, that the system in which we cast and count our votes is is so inefficient that proving that in a court of law is is challenging. Pretty but tough. In no way. Uh- should we stop? We've got to get to the bottom of what happened so that we can be sure it doesn't happen again. Hey, I, I get a I'm sorry, one more question. Sorry, I get to talking sure. with Catherine Engelbrecht, truthevote.org. I get this question all the time. They say, where's a list of all the fraud that happened in 2020? Does such a list exist yet? I mean, a lot of it. Is there a place where you go and say, is, does True the Vote have that? Or is there someone that's compiled like there's this and this and this and this so that people can see the laundry list? Uh, I don't think there's, not that I know, there's not a laundry list yet, because that laundry list by rights really should be uh, reflective of people who are voting in more than one state. Uh, people, not, not just right. going on state by state, but, but nationally. And there's so many overarching themes here. How did uh, litigation that was illegal or action by fiat that was unconstitutional impact elections? Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a very big story that needs to be told. And and our tendency is to is to kind of hold our cards until we can tell the full story. But but we will. And um, right. it's it's, you know, yeah. and it's a historic story. All right. We got to run. Catherine Engelbeck, truthevote.org. Thank you for everything you do and hang in there. And we'll look forward to talking again soon. Thanks, Catherine. Absolutely. Thanks, Ed. Bye. All right. We'll take a quick break and be right back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Back in a moment. Welcome back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. I was telling you in the open of the show, I've been looking forward to this conversation. Our next guest is Lance Morrow, and he is, of course, a very well-known writer, uh, wrote for Time Magazine, Wall Street Journal. He's also a lot of our, our younger uh, conservatives have probably seen him on City, is writing over at City Journal. Um, he's uh, He also taught up at Boston University. He doesn't know this. I'll tell him now. I went to College of the Holy Cross down in Worcester, and we went up to BU every now and then to try to make, tr- make trouble back in the day. So welcome, uh, Lance Morrow to the program. How are you, sir? I'm great. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, yeah, it's great to have you. And your new book, it's called God and Mammon, Chronicles of American Money. And I, I, I thought it was a great one in the holiday season as everybody's worried about money. They're worried about gifts. They're worried about things. It's kind of a great book, a great topic. And I, I, I my listeners know, uh, Mr. Morrow, I, I read books by reading the first and last chapter, and then I kind of bounce through and I'm about, I'd say, two thirds of the way through your book. So if, so thank you for Encounter Books. Thank you for uh, writing it. And let me first ask you this. Um, you've, you're tr- trajectory of your career is you've been around a while. That's the way I'm saying that. It's like a way, a trick to say, you know, you've been around a while. And America's devotion to money, obsession with money, love affair with money, is it worse now? Is it better now? Is it more uh, significant now? How is it sort of, how has the trajectory of that been? Well, um, I, my, my feeling, I, I start actually at the beginning and before the beginning of the American founding. And it's it's been a pretty constant presence uh, and motivator and and uh, a motive for the settlement of the country and and so on for for a long time. Uh, whether today is um, any more, I, I suppose you're talking about proportions between money as a motive versus some other uh, right. freedom or or that kind of thing. Right. Uh, yeah. So. Uh, I would 
I think the country is is in a rather confused state, but maybe it always is. But, uh, yeah. but uh, I think it's I think it's difficult to isolate money as you know one particular motive. People often have many many motives, but money. My point in the book is to talk about the fact that money throughout the history of the country has been a very basic almost a, a language, almost a common language and a common denominator, and the way that Americans evaluated one another and measured one another and how they they measured their success or their failure. Um, it's a mm-hmm. big, diverse country, and it was conjured up out of you know, many immigrations and, and settlements and so on, and there was a great deal of confusion in it. So the money became a sort of common denominator and a way of organizing things. And, of course, a, you know, a, a terrific reason it attracted. So it, it, it's always been there in one, in one, uh, to one degree or another. And we're talking with uh, Lance Morrow, the, uh, the the writer, and his book, again, is God and Mammon, Chronicles of American Money. It's out on Counter Books. Uh, and uh, I, so here's a – I'm a, I'm a devo, devotee of Eric Hoffer, the kind of uh, quirky yeah, philosopher, yeah. Longshor- longshoreman. And Hoffer, one of the things I remember him saying is truly poor people don't often join mass movements. I think that's how he said it. When you're really poor, you've got a purpose, right? When you're – people that were the Great Depression, they, they – they, my, my, Phyllis Schlafly, for whom I worked, she she never really forgot the Great Depression. It was in her, and yeah. that shifted yeah, the way she saw things. And and now we have a certain America. We have a certain prosperity of 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 that's common. I'm not saying everybody's well off enough, mm-hmm. but there's enough prosperity that your your um your energy is aimed or is is able to be aimed in different directions. And it, it, do you exactly. see what I'm saying? And am I off base? What do you think? No, absolutely. And I was as you were saying that I was thinking of the 1960s. And I was thinking of the uh-huh. generation, the the immense generation of the boomers who were starting in uh, being born in 1946, coming of age in a um, through the 50s, a very prosperous peacetime economy. So there was a great deal of privilege in all of that um, upheaval and dissent and so on. And I think the point is correct that um, uh, offers point that uh, when you are focused on uh, the basics of survival and, and uh, you know, putting food on the table and supporting your family, then um, there is less inclination, unless, of course, you are in the French Revolution or something like that, and you have... But right. I, I, spend a, I spend a lot of time um, in my book uh, writing about the Depression and, and the, the effect, yeah. the, the psychic, the emotional effect of the depression, right? It was a, it was a tremendous trauma, and uh, and it, you know, you, I felt it when I was a, I, was a child. I came along uh, just at the end of the depression in 1939, and uh, I, as a as a child growing up, I was very much aware of the after effects, and I could see in my parents the uh, the emotional. Um, you could feel right. it. You could feel that certain chill. And my younger brothers and sisters, I come from an enormous family, and I have many younger brothers and sisters, and they were boomers. They were born starting in 48 and then all through the 50s. 
um, they were raised in a different America, and so they had a different attitude toward America. And um, yeah. it, it's a very, I'm a great believer in, in generational theories of the uh, yeah of, of history that the, the way that one generation will uh, think about the country as opposed to the next and and uh, world war ii for example my dimmest memories are of world war ii and to right. me my, my father and uncles were heroes and 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 America was a hero, you know. It was, it was defeating Hitler right. and uh, the, the Japanese Empire. To my younger brothers and sisters, America was sort of a villain because of Vietnam. And uh, so it's very yeah. interesting. The, the, you know, it's, it's, we were born in literally different countries. And, uh, and the attitudes, uh, it's fascinating to follow those attitudes down the years through the Reagan administration, through... Uh, to the to the present time, and, and uh, a well, lot of the conflicts yeah. that we have now are the same, you know, originated then. Yeah, we're talking with Lance Morrow again. His book is God and Mammon: Chronicles of American Money and Counter Books. Uh, Mr. Morrow, um, uh, on that, I, I, and a very simplistic. When I read the book, I, I, one of the things I, I remember: it, it's easier too. It's easy for the imagination. You can almost picture the breadlines. But you know, nobody that was around in the era around the Great Depression didn't come away feeling it. You know, the, the people just did. They described how they yeah. felt about. It. Even if you didn't have, if you, even if you had money, you still felt it. Now, in modern yeah. times, come all the way forward, a, a lot of young people, millennials, whatever you call them, they've had everything. They, they have everything they ever need. There's not a sort of devotion to money or to ambition. There's a sort of it'll all come around kind of thing. And I, I, maybe I'm overcharacterizing because I'm not a millennial. I'm you know 50 years old, so I'm between you and them. And, and But it, it feels like yeah. this modern generation is, is less devoted to money because I don't think they think they need it because it all works out. Well, that's, that's, that's very interesting. I, I think there's something to what you say. I, the, it, there's no doubt in my mind that the attitude toward money and the need for money and the, um, the motivation to get it has changed. There's, there's no doubt yeah. about that. And I know an awful lot of millennials who not only do they not have a drive to make money, but they don't have a drive to practically do anything. I mean, it's really, you know, <laughs> yeah. I, I wouldn't say it yeah. all that way, but I know, I, you know, what I'm talking about. It, it, it's, there's a certain listlessness and and uh, yeah, and and yeah, it's I a strange, yeah, man, yeah. I suppose there's many sources, but uh, but it's very yeah. pronounced in, in some of the cases mm-hmm. that I think of. Yeah, and, and well, unfortunately, Lance Moore. Yeah, yeah. Good. Finish, please. Finish, please. Finish. Oh, um, I, I lost my my thread no. there. I, no, no, that's uh, it. Yeah, yeah, no, no. I better. I I got to run. Unfortunately, I'm getting my ear, my producer. But I'll have you back on. Uh, maybe I'll just take you out to lunch because I'm really interested in this uh, in this topic. But I've got to run. Unfortunately, Lance Morrow and his new book. I'll put it up on social media. God and Mammon Encounter Books. Uh, thank you, sir. Have a great holiday season, and uh, we'll I'll have you on again. A very interesting uh, conversation. I got to run. Uh, great pleasure. Thank with, you. Thank you. We'll take a quick break and be right back. It's Ed Martin here on a Pro-America Report. Back in a moment. This is the Phyllis Schlafly Report, presenting a daily conservative pro-family perspective since 1983 and continuing the legacy of Phyllis Schlafly. Now here's the president of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, Ed Martin. December 17, 1903. 
is remembered as the day America took flight. From the hills outside of Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, brothers Wilbur and Orville Wright made history by flying in what the Smithsonian describes as the first powered, heavier-than-air machine to achieve controlled, sustained flight with a pilot aboard. The Wright brothers' valiant work is a testament to the power of American ingenuity. However, the real story about these brothers goes far beyond the snapshot we read about in the history books. Behind the Wright Flyer is a hidden secret to America's success as the world's leader in innovation. The December 17th flight was not the first of the Wright brothers' flights, nor would it be the last. They'd previously spent years studying, designing, and testing various types of aircraft. Their early work on gliders was impressive, but they never stopped innovating. Even days before their famous powered flight, they ran tests and worked out kinks to get the design exactly right. All their hard work paid off when their goal was dramatically achieved on December 17, 1903. You may be wondering where the great American secret comes into the story. That comes into play next, when the Wright brothers filed patents to protect their innovations. Before long, they had contracts with the American and French militaries to provide them with the new and improved versions of the original Wright Flyer. The Wright brothers became an international sensation, visited by royalty from throughout the world and lauded by everyone from New York City to their hometown of Dayton, Ohio. The brothers became wealthy and successful entrepreneurs, employing many pilots, craftsmen, and businessmen. All this was made possible by America's groundbreaking protection of intellectual property rights. The Wright brothers may have had a passion for flying for flying's sake, but they still needed to support their families. Knowing that others wouldn't be able to steal their invention, Wilbur and Orville had the incentive to revolutionize travel for all time. When you fly to visit family this Christmas, take a moment to be thankful for the Wright brothers and for America's ingenious patent and trademark system. This has been the Phyllis Schlafly Report with Ed Martin, president of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. These culturally relevant commentaries, along with videos, columns, and bulletins, are waiting for you at phyllisschlafly.com. That's phyllisschlafly.com. Plus, you can find, follow, and share our work on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks for listening, and join us again for the Phyllis Schlafly Report. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Now, listen, I want to talk to you about something here, go through a little bit, and I hope this will be a standalone segment that I can email around. But uh, uh, just a couple days ago when I told you the, the news broke about SolarWinds, SolarWinds is a tech company, and SolarWinds uh, got hacked. And so here, here's a memo that exists on the Internet, and I checked it out. It seems to be somebody who's got an IT background, and here's the way the memo goes. I'm just going to walk you through it. What is SolarWinds? Okay, so it's, an, it's one of the leading IT managers companies, meaning it's got a set of product, products that are used for network management, okay? So these are the tools that, that network engineers manage and, and use to monitor networks. This is all from SolarWinds.com, okay? So there are 13 SolarWinds uh, ma- network management tools, okay? There's Orion. That was the one that uh, they that was compromised. And Orion is what they call the keys to the kingdom. This memo, I'll put it up on social media. And it's absolute access to everything. SolarWinds centralized all the management and monitoring of their stuff under Orion. 
And so you get in there, and that's how you start things. And then underneath that, you get other stuff. There's NetFlow Traffic Analyzer, Network Performance Monitor. There's other tools you can do, but that's the basics. So what is important here to note is that when SolarWinds Orion product was compromised, everything else, all of the other stuff was compromised too. And that is the the difference here. And so the hacking of Orion, it allowed whoever got in to inflict, go all the way in to everywhere that it was. And so the question is, did that intruder not exercise the opportunity to go all the way through? And so the uh, the question is, it, the, the, the question is, why would they do this and what would happen? And now we know that Dominion uses SolarWinds Orion product. And now we know, for example, in the Michigan case, the Michigan uh, County that they studied the D- Dominion uh, machines, that the Dominion machines that after they were done doing this um, uh, administrative role, they deleted, they got rid of the log that would show whether anyone is connected to uh, the internet from those machines. Totally gone. The 2018 stuff is there. The 2016 stuff is there. The logs, and they're gone. So the uh, the 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 question you have to ask, the question you have to ask is, what were they doing, and how can we ever prove it? And there's a moment in this where what you just have to say to yourself is, they had access to everything, and therefore, when it's compromised. What what can you say about it? How do you say? Do we really think that it was not going to be uh, uh, something that is uh, utilized by somebody? Is that possible? Is it possible that people are going to not use the impact of what they have, uh, of what they've been able to do for the for their efforts? I, I don't know why that would be. That's my question. What who thinks that it was likely that they wouldn't go forward and and utilize this? And the the interesting thing about this guy that did this um, uh, analysis, which I was just quoting to you, is he doesn't come to a conclusion. He doesn't appear to be somebody who thinks that he knows that the election was hacked for Biden. He's just saying here we can see the system was able to be hacked and it had this uh, a vulnerability and I don't know what they used it for. He kind of says, I'm not sure what they used it for, but my point is they were doing it for some reason. This reminds me of when I was uh, running the election board in the city of St. Louis and people used to say to me, well, there's been no instances of election day fraud. And I said, well, when we had thousands of fake voter registrations submitted, faulty, uh, clearly looked like at the time we never could prove it because we referred it to prosecutors and they wouldn't take it up. It's another story for another day. But uh, people that were hired by a local group. That was kind of a front group for an Acorn-like organization. I think it may have been actually formally with Acorn, but it may have had a different name and these connected web of uh, nonprofits. But they had hired some people who filled out from the phone book, it looked like, uh, names and then submitted them as registrations. And as I said to someone, why else would you have fake registrations to vote? You, you you don't do that for fun. You don't do that for like, it doesn't inflate. You know, I can understand some people would put in fake names for the census, because if you put in fake names for the census in, say, the city of St. Louis, the city would get more benefits when it came to allocating um, resources under f- certain federal laws. They say if a city has this many people, they get this much money, for example. So that would make sense. So that fraud would make sense. But when someone says, oh, there's no election fraud, there's just uh, there's just registration fraud. 
why register? You know, in other words, why are you registering voters if you're not looking to cause problems? If you're not actually looking to do something? Otherwise, it doesn't make any sense. Why go to the effort, the time and money to hire people to put in false registration? And why bother if there's not some intent to cause problems at some point? And that's now what you have to say the question is. In fact, I'm actually willing to say, and this is amazing to me, that was 15 years ago. Maybe back then we didn't know what they were planning to do or trying to do. That by putting voters on the rolls that they could use them to to change the election. Because that's what it looks like in Michigan. There was a 68% error rate when you scanned the the, uh, voting ballots, meaning that they came up in the system as not able to be read. And therefore, an individual in another room at a computer had to decide who the vote was for unsupervised un you know watched that's the, this is what we're the allegation that looks like a way to just make sure you get enough votes in this get enough names in the system that you can then say look at the number of votes I don't know, something's going on, and we've got to get to the bottom of it. We're going to have to. So that's what I wanted to put up there. I'll put it up on social media. You can take a look. Uh, thank you, as always, uh, to Noah, our great technical director, for a great show. Also to Joanna for helping book these great guests, Mr. Morrow, as well as uh, Ms. Catherine Engelbrecht. We'll put her, especially at truethevote.com. you got to check out the good work they're doing there. So we will be back tomorrow, as always. Thank you for listening, and go to proamericareport.com to find out more. Talk to you tomorrow. America Report on The Answer, San Diego.